real into it today, aren't you? Yeah. Just not even I'm trying. Sure. You're not even trying to care I have anymore. all the energy. I'm, I'm so stoked. I don't know why you're here. I'm beside myself with joy. It'll be it. my turn next week. I'll do it for two episodes because I'm going out. I'll be out late Saturday yeah. next week. So it'll be real. Yeah, but you can sleep in. That's true. Sleep is good. I might not be enough. I'm I, old now. I'm going to start doing it at some point. Yeah, and just, yeah. It's, it's like I'm gonna start working out. I'll start sleeping. Doesn't matter how much sleep you get; it just doesn't doesn't seem to help. It's never enough. I it doesn't cure so, what ails you. I got so much this weekend. Ooh wee! Sorry, not to brag, but I'm feeling really great. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> so, <laughs> I recommend it. I'm so. I happy. went to bed at like 9 p.m. last night. Yeah, I'm not gonna you know not be happy for you. Yeah, let's keep it tight. Keep it right. We'll be in and out of this in five minutes. That's yeah. right. I'll go home and sleep some more. Hey, don't be a gun. Let's go home. Bye. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. This week's <laughs> film is Brad Bird's The Iron Giant. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, um, we're a podcast that talks about movies that don't belong in syllabi, although this one kind of sort of does. I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And if you're tuning in for the very first time to this show, it is an analysis show, not a review show. And that, therefore, means we are doing analysis, and that means spoilers. We will find out whether or not... Vin Diesel is, in fact, a gun. I believe he is the um, anthropomorphization of a gun um, in real life. So a Transformer. He's a Transformer. Yes, he is. I accidentally titled our 28 Days Later episode, 28 Days Laters. Uh, oh, I love about a group of valley girls who get confronted by a zombie <laughs> later in a mall in, in California. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a pitch. We got that. <laughs> but as an analysis TM, show. TM, TM. <laughs> we're going to spoil 28 Days Later and The Iron Giant in this, uh, probably not this podcast, but in podcasts we might do. You know what? We, or we might, might have done. We've done that, but we might spoil 28 Days Later again <laughs> we, this week. Who knows? Yeah, we well, might find our way to, way to that. But we'll avoid it at the top end of the show. We will uh, We will be, at, at, at times, we will be withholding in our narration. And the way we do that is a synopsis, which is spoiler-free. We'll play a little game uh, of thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, and then a game, a real game, <laughs> an actual game of uh, expanding the syllabus. Why is everything a game to you? <laughs> I don't know. We're just, I'm, I'm, I'm down to clown, man. I can't tell you. That's just who I am. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> and that game of expanding the syllabus might involve gentle spoilers of this film or films of its ilk, and then we get down to business. There'll be music that said we got down to business, and uh, we're down to our socks and spoilers. Um, spoilers will be down to our socks. And uh, that's when all spoiler bets are off, so you have been warned about that. I am done saying this preamble. Arthur, Ooh. please give us a synopsis. Hogarth Hughes is smart and obviously the odd kid out, especially after skipping a grade. He's prone to bringing home pets, but when a 100-foot robot with no memory follows him home, Hogarth meets his match and his best friend. He finds his way into all of our hearts. You made it sound really like very homeward bound. Uh, I don't know how you did that, but you did that. That's there. It's, it's excellent. Thank you. Um, so with that, um, we've all Is seen it because I said home multiple times? I don't know. Probably because I said home a lot. It's, it's, it's possible. Just, the, the, the puppy association was really strong there. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone's seen this movie before? This is my 38th favorite film. I've yeah. never seen it. You've never seen it. This was the first it. time for you. Yeah. Well, Arthur, why don't you kick us off? What did you think of uh, 1999's The Iron Giant? Absolute trash. Uh, oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful animated. Uh, I, I just love that classic kind of hand-drawn style, um, which is just kind of sorely missed in today's uh, CGI world. A lot world. of old people like the way things used to be. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's better, uh, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> it turns out they did objectively used to make things better sometimes. Yeah. Some things of the craftsmanship was just there. Practical's better than CGI. Not sometimes always. hand-drawn animation is better than CGI. Sometimes CGI is better. The That's iron true. the iron giant is a computer creature. But when yeah. is CGI better than CGI? That's what I want to know. Uh when it wasn't mass produced by Marvel for the last 10 years? Okay. Yeah, they 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 weren't uh, doing sort of the monkeys on typewriters. When they had yeah, slave labored their CG artists to manufacture yeah. these movies and shows. Um, Taskmasters on them. Well, there's a bit of taskmastering with Brad Bird's production, but well, well there is a little bit. Yeah, yeah Brad Bird bit. is sort of an exacting director. We'll talk about a that. Bit authoritarian, you might say. That's good at Disney. And collaborative at times, though, in this sort of an interesting way. We'll talk about this sort of the interesting uh, process of making this movie. Yeah, back to me. Um, <laughs> it's a good movie. Yeah, I, I do. I blame both of you, actually. It's uh, all, all bets are off. Did, is Charlie in here? <laughs> Not anymore. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to have to go fix that. Um, movie good. Uh, <laughs> some of the voice acting is not great. Uh, and I don't know quite what it is. Uh, I don't know if it's the voice acting with the anime. I don't know. Something's off. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't completely sell. I'm not sold on I like Conic, but it, I don't know. There's something off about that. I like uh, Conic, and I, I like and I like Jennifer Aniston, too. No, Jennifer Aniston, I think, is great. Okay. I think she missed her calling as a voice actress. This is the best movie she's ever been in. It's one of her best performances. That's I'm not going to argue that's, with yeah, you. That's yeah, that's her best performance. You're not wrong. Uh, I, I think she's great here. The, no, there's some. I don't know. Some of the anim- voice acting just doesn't do it for me. Interesting. Uh, I, I like uh, the 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 colonel or lieutenant or commander or whatever. John he Mahoney. Is. Yeah. Um, Fraser's. I like. Uh, no, 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 no. The the one that comes to live with their house. Oh, Manly. Yeah. yeah. Christopher McDonald. Yeah. yeah. And Fraser's dad. Yeah. Uh, is also fun. So I mean, there's some good voice acting. Some of it just is wooden or stilted or it just doesn't feel okay. as natural as if you had brought in actual voice talents who can actually do voice acting. Um, it's a good movie, though. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's 90 minutes. It's tight. It's right. Uh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it, it is absolutely stunning. Uh, it's got that going for it. It's sweet. Uh, I knew how it was going to end, and I still cried. Uh, so it, it really does hook you. Uh, Vin Diesel, another all-time great performance for him. Because, uh, again, not, not many great performances from Vin Diesel. Uh, so uh, doing good work here as, as this uh, robot. <laughs> Yeah, I'm out there shaking. Gordon, yeah, Iyer's not throwing. Thro- thro- he's, throw- he's not pulling bunches. Uh, Absolutely not. Yeah, my small dog is probably out peeing and pooping in the house everywhere, so I've got to go uh, figure that out. So uh, anyway, yeah, good movie. <laughs> okay, all right, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, ranking of the thirty eighth. Tell I think, us, I think it was thirty eight. Something tell, like that. Tell us why this is the thirty eighth best movie of all time. Wow. Well, okay, it's my thirty eighth favorite movie. My list. We talked about list <laughs> metrics for a whole. 30 minutes probably no, stand by your claim i'll stand sir. by my claim it's a damn fine film uh i would go as far as call it an american classic it's it's a, it's quite a shame this movie didn't make money <laughs> it basically killed warner brothers animation uh, it does feel timeless it it well you know the 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 50s it the the 90s portrayal of the 50s works really well yeah. i mean there's a lot of great 90s movies about the 50s uh well i, I guess there's another sandlot is the other one i'm thinking of uh but there's probably some others i'm not pulling right now but yeah i think that does give it a timeless feel that, that um, sort of that nostalgic look back that period piece setting I think is really good. I, I think there's a universe where Brad Bird became the American Miyazaki. If this movie was a big hit, 
I, I think with this movie could have saved hand-drawn animation because it's, I mean, it's that good. You know, they, they were very confident this movie was going to make money. They're, when they finally got it in front of test audiences, it came back with A-pluses and all that good business. And, you know, they thought they had a hit on their hands, but they only spent four months marketing in it and, that, you know, really hamstrung its uh, its prospects, unfortunately. So there's a lot of coulda, woulda, shouldas with this movie, and I think that's only makes it more interesting. Um, it is that... that that commitment to doing it better really is what makes this different. Uh, you know, instead of having um, their animators uh, supervise characters, they basically had each animator direct a scene, mm-hmm. uh, which I think lends to the the actual animation acting being so strong. Uh, I'm not the first person to point this out, but I think it definitely helps. Um, and I, I think to your point, Arthur, that might be what what's not clicking for you is I think those the animation acting is like sometimes better than the voice acting. I like Connick Jr. as Dean a Maybe lot. Maybe that's what it is. It's I, like a disconnect. Yeah. yeah. D- well, it, it doesn't help that Dean is just objectively hotter than Connick Jr. No offense, Henry, but uh, Dean's a fox. Uh, <laughs> I mean... He is definitely the the I, the beefcake of the film. Yeah, yeah. that maybe like a disconnect between what's happening on screen versus the voice behind it that doesn't match up. Yeah, is that kind of what you're? Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's maybe Harry Connick Jr. Jr. Is, is hot. Yeah, in real life. Yeah, is that is it? Nobody no. thinks Harry Connick Jr. is hot except for fifty year old women in Dustin. Um, I think, <laughs> but everybody thinks Dean's hot, and that's a fact, Jack, including Dustin, including Dustin. <laughs> I, he yeah. already he already called him the beefcake of the piece. He is the beefcake of the piece, but I think Harry Connick Jr. has a certain je ne sais quoi <laughs> something yeah i'm just ragging on harry got it because he's more talented and richer than i am so yeah exactly why not it's a good looking no, he's man attra- no, he's attractive okay he yeah. is. i'm just giving him a hard time but no i, I think i think terrible voice actor <laughs> yeah i don't know i'm curious what uh doesn't do it about you for that him. may be what it is yeah that, i think that may be what it is it's like a i couldn't figure it out it was like a weird disconnect between yeah, performance yeah. And, and animation. And that may be what it is. Okay. Um, yeah. It's one of those things where you cannot not see the actor and you're seeing the character on screen. No, it's not that. It's, it's what he's saying is the animation itself, the character on the screen it, is so animated, so passionate, so, so lively, yeah. and the voice isn't matching and that emotion. And the laconic emotion. sort of, you know, the, the thing that is Harry Connick Because there's Jr., even yeah. some of that with uh, Hogarth, I think, yeah. too. I think one where it really lands in, in a good way, uh, I think, is the, the scene where Hogarth drinks too much espresso. I think the voice acting and the animation are like, boom, like right just on, in sync yeah. with each other. That's very fun, Yeah, dude. it's a great scene. I, th- this movie is full of great you scenes. You don't say. It's just great sequence after great sequence in this. The, that first meeting, we get Hogarth, his mom, Dean, all off the board. Like, we introduce all those characters in one fell swoop. We introduce the idea that Hogarth is like, got this obsession with bringing home a pet and, you know, building a bond with something. Like, it's, it's just economy of storytelling. As Arthur said, it's a tight, it's 90 minutes with credits. This is like an 82 minute movie if you shave the credits off. It is, boom, gets its mission accomplished very quickly and with great economy of plot. And I'm going to continue that with this review. Yeah, I, I love this movie, and uh, anything I say about it is going to be, uh, you know, tied to the fact that I love it. So I, you know, I can't really separate myself from that. I still remember watching this on VHS with Miguel Medina on in my tiny little CRT TV in my uh, my bedroom at my parents' house. Yeah, I love this movie. I think it's great. Dustin, did you see this in theaters? I did not see it in theaters. When did you catch up with it? Uh, I, I mean, I was right after it first came on okay. video. I think yeah, so early two thousands. Okay, you know, it was I mean, within you, you know so pre kid, pre having a child. Yes. Okay. For sure, pre marriage. Okay. 
pre being married. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Now, not long before I got yeah. married, but yeah. I guess we didn't. Well, and so you just for the first time for this show watched it, right? Yeah. Wow. I've never that's seen it. So exciting. Yeah. I, and I miss it in theaters. Just like I mean, I was the perfect age to see it, but nobody saw it in theaters. I would love to. It's gorgeous, dude. If seriously. I have to say it again, it's it's gorgeous. It's a pretty movie. Um, and I, that's exactly my thought too. It's a very very pretty film. I really do like its style. I I love how fifties B movie it is. Mm. That it, it, it simultaneously is cha- uh, channeling very much the day the earth stood still and those 50s science fiction mm-hmm. uh, slash little horror uh, B pictures and uh, Steven Spielberg's Amblin universe. It's super mm-hmm. Amblin. Kids yeah. with their BB yeah. guns in the woods and missing they and I find a fr- missing dads and I find my new best friend and he's going to help me sort of deal with who I am as a person. It, I mean, there's there's a lot of ET DNA inside mm-hmm. this film alongside again that great they came from outer space kind of sense uh, of the film and that sort of politics of the Cold War that is inflecting a lot of the movie. Um, I do love Jennifer Aniston a lot in this movie and I, I didn't really think so much about Harry Connick Jr. being bad as much as Harry Connick Jr. being fine uh, as uh, Manly the uh, Dean. Dean no Harry Connick Jr. is Dean Dean, Dean. Christopher McDonald is Christopher Manly Christopher McDonald's man. Shooter uh, my, my Shooter whole, McGavin yeah my did whole, we just fuck your whole brain up my whole brain is messed up yes I, I think I knew that but at some point I flipped it while we were talking uh, and I, 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 I'm back okay welcome back I'm sleepy um, I had a I'm Doc and that's do- uh, dopey. I yep. had a I had a blonde in my bed last night, and I had no sleep. Um, and don't be gross. Uh, as a four year old, yeah, I know. Uh, she don't be gross. Me, she She'll dig in a grave. She yeah. beat me to death. Uh, yeah, it yeah. was. It sounds like a great thing, and then it's not a great thing. No, you um, just it, had a toddler beating on you. Oh man, it was awful. The worst night of my life. Anyway, um, I love my daughter, but I may sell her to science this week. Um, <laughs> given the opportunity and uh, the proper price on eBay, he's got a motive. Uh, <laughs> Would you trade your child for an Iron Giant, perhaps? Would I? Um, no. <laughs> there's n- in the metro. There's a nowhere to store it. Mm. I, I mean, I guess plenty to feed it. <sighs> well, it, it just it, since it steals the food anyway. I mean, it, it's not like I'm feeding it. It feeds itself, right? Yeah, yeah. you just have to find a way to store but, it. But would I be fined for damages? That would be the real question. Is, is Norman's uh, is Norman's like home authority home home organizations kind of tied on that thing? Uh, or like, uh, you know, the thing are about they like. The hey, joke about Norman is you don't have to live in an HOA because Norman's an HOA. Yeah, that would be a so, thing. Like, curb appeal is like a big deal across the city. Yeah, right? it kind of is. Yeah, they, they'll, they'll get you. <laughs> yeah, so those giants just poking up. Uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would see myself getting fined. And they're very close to an airport anyway. I think it'd be kind of dangerous. Um, uh, that's so, a fair point. Yeah, especially you know. if he thinks it's targeting him. Yeah, and well, it's 100 feet tall. So, I mean, it's in the way. Uh, nonetheless, uh, what I am going to say is I do think the performances are very, very solid. I do love the idea of this very, very cool beatnik. You know, I mean, you know, somebody's got to take it for the crazies because who else will? I mean, yeah. that's just great stuff, right? And this very, very cool beatnik uh, character for Dean, I, I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I do love the wisdom of our general, who is a, a little more thoughtful than uh, Manley's character. Mm-hmm. And that whole works. I do like this little subplot of uh, lonely Randy Jenner for Haniston, uh, because at one point he's just home eating breakfast. Um, uh, the the uh, manly character is, and not commented on. It's just it's just a thing that's going. No, they on. said they run in the room. Yeah, he's boarding with them. He's boarding. He, with he's them. boarding with them. But they're they're. 
there's, no, there, there's absolutely no. not. There's Manly, chemistry. No. With no. Manly, you're yeah, insane, no. dude. Ke- nope. I, I you're insane. You're voted off the I, island. Well, I, I'm happy to leave the island. You're I, happy to be wrong. I, yeah. I, I felt like there was a, a thing going on there, and then she sort of repents of it, and I, I kind of like that. But it's my headcanon, and I'm going gonna, gonna to live with it. What is up with him lately? I don't it's know. It's the sleep, He's right? A monster. It, it, well, it may be the lack of sleep. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder he got uh, Christopher McDonald and uh, Henry Connick, Connick Jr. mixed up in his head. Yeah. Jeez. Um, uh, there, there's very little sleep inside this brain. But we're going to podcast anyway because this will be entertaining. Uh, That's the idea. And so I, I enjoy the movie quite a bit. I, I think there's a lot going on with it. And, and again, the, as far as text and subtext or infratext, there's not a lot of sub to the subtext. But it's pretty much just text. We'll talk about that as we get there. But I, I do think it is an interesting oddity in uh, the history of animated uh, filmmaking. And uh, more on that, I'm sure, will follow anon. But I think our general consensus around the table is that we like Iron Giant. So with that, I think we're going to move on to the next step of the process of this podcast, which is Expanding the Syllabus, a little game we like to play. And Dalton's going to explain what that's all about. I sure will, Dustin. So Expanding the Syllabus is a thought experiment where the three of us try to assemble an academic course using the movie that we're discussing for the week. Uh, So of this week it's the Iron Giant, so we're going to try to assemble a class of some sort with, uh, you know, related movies, related texts, uh, and try to present to you something that looks reasonably academic. That's uh, right. And involves the Iron Giant. Did you bring a syllabus with you? I cheated, and we're just going to talk about Brad Bird, unfortunately. That's uh, okay, because I'm kind of... I almost to... went with that. I, well, I think he's an interesting <laughs> filmmaker. I'm going to do yeah. something like that, but we'll see what happens. I almost went with, like, a history of animation class, because <laughs> the Iron Giant is sort of a big deal in the history of animation, uh, especially American animation. Uh, but I, I just truly, I don't know quite enough about it and didn't have the, the research time. We would have spent a lot of time talking about this and Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, this is animated on the ones that's animated on the twos. And mm-hmm. I barely, uh, that's basically how many frames of animation per second. So animation doing. on the ones, dear listener, if you're listening at home is one picture for every 24 seconds or one picture for every frame. So film is typically shot 24 frames per second, 24 pictures for per second animation. Yeah. Um, you double them and just use, uh, the same picture twice for shooting something on the two. So it ends up being 12 total images, but there's still 24 flickers that happen there. So if that, if that may, I hope that made sense. I think you may, I think you did a good job. That was was a good, that's why I didn't do it. I was afraid I would not be able to do it quickly. I think that was a great explanation of it. Uh, but yeah, this, this movie's sort of interesting in a lot of ways, uh, but I, I think it all came back to Brad Bird for me. So I think we're going to start there and just kind of talk about him as a filmmaker and sort of his interesting journey, because he starts off very young. He gets this sort of unheard of high school internship at Disney. They had never done anything like that. Dude was like 14. Yeah, young, super young. Uh, but he, you know, had a talent and a passion for animation. And then as soon as he starts working at Disney, it's sort of a fallow period for Disney. <laughs> he has to go work on The Simpsons for a few years. And, uh, you know, that the thing that I think is really interesting is he is exacting. You know, he there's a, on, there's a really great documentary on the Blu-ray for this movie, and it's on YouTube is where I watched it. Uh, it's The Giant's Dream. Um, really, really solid hour-long making-of doc. But, uh, you know, him and his producer uh, did not get along great, and I, I think that kind of tells you... A little bit about you know him as a collaborator allison abbott uh being the the producer on iron giant um they fought a ton you know people heard it and it was awkward for everybody 
And, uh, you know, even when asked about it years later, that Brad had nothing but nice things to say about Angela, but or Allison, rather. Uh, Allison still was kind of like, eh, it wasn't great. Uh, you know, which I think is interesting. It is sort of uh, a tough guy to work with, but at the same time, did these sort of group collaborative, um, or not collaborative, but these sort of group critique sessions where they would project everybody's work on a whiteboard and he would be like, all right, well, this needs to be a little bit different, but it allowed the animators to kind of come together, figure out each other's strengths and weaknesses and sort of work together to make the movie look better. I mean, again, this all comes back to this movie looks incredible because they took the time and the effort and had half the time of, you know, other movies like them. You know, they had to do, I think, a typical Disney movie at the time this was made had like five years production, and this had like two and a half years. Uh, and they had not quite the budget that a Disney animated film would have. So, again, with fewer resources, way scrappier animators, they made a pretty uh, gargantuan achievement in American animation. And, and that unity that they get in the movie is the kind of unity that you you don't see in a Disney picture where they're animating per character. So this mm-hmm. is going back to the per scene thing that you're yeah. talking about here is that uh, you'll, you'll, it's like the genie is in like in a different movie than Aladdin and Jasmine are in. Yes, in Aladdin. that's such a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah, everybody's in the same movie here, though, and I think that that is kind of crucial. Uh, I think if we did this class, we'd also kind of talk about the he's he's been had the objectivist label thrown at him a couple of times. Uh, I think that mostly comes down to the Incredibles and um, uh, Tomorrowland. I mean, Tomorrowland being like the most explicit one because it is sort of about you know, these scientists going off to work outside of the eye of the public. But, uh, I, you know, I think that there's critiques to be made of that take on his work. I think he's more nuanced, more interesting mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think that that's necessary. He, now he is a, obsessed with exceptionalism for sure. I mean, we look at Ratatouille, uh, the Incredibles, uh, even this movie to some extent, like it is, th- there is a, a recurring theme there. Uh, but again, I, I think he's interesting. So in case you're wondering, what all is Brad Bird made? I'll give you the quick rundown. It's, of course, The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Tomorrowland, and The Incredibles 2. Uh, so and, and apparently he's going to finally get to make Ray Gunn. Uh, oh, that that thing he's been talking about forever. Yeah, yeah, which was almost went into production before Warner Brothers bought Turner Animation. But yeah, he uh, he had like a week left on his contract when Warner Brothers snagged Turner Animation, and uh, they threw that movie away. But uh, hopefully, it gets made. Be interesting. It's sort of a you know a sci-fi noir type story. It's Ray Gunn with two ends. It's a name. Pretty good name. That's a good name. Pretty good. So anyway, we would we take a look at the work of career, uh, the work and career of Brad Bird. Uh, again, I think maybe the documentary about the Iron Giants where we would actually start because it does kind of give a, an interesting window into his career and also his motivations for making the Iron Giant, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we get into expanding the, or uh, when we get into business time. I think probably so. Uh, Arthur, how would you teach the Iron Giant? What were you thinking? You almost did Brad Bird too. Yeah, that would seem like the most on-the-nose idea. Yeah. Uh, but then I went back to a character uh, trait, uh, and I thought about amnesia on film. Oh, uh, This is something nice. that the uh, the giant himself is suffering from. He's got a little bonk on the head, uh, which has sort of reset his uh, memory. He doesn't know who he is, what his mission that is. That he's a Soviet death machine. Yes, that he could kill Martian the entire planet. Machine. Is he Martian? I think so. I think he came from space. Oh, I thought he was the Soviets built him. No, no I, I think we would have seen a flag. I, I thought we did on the space capsule on... No. You're probably I, thinking I, about Sputnik. There's some Sputnik There's a uh, Sputnik footage. thing there, and I thought it was related to the Sputnik. No, it never says where he came from. Oh, man. It's never resolved. I'm sleepy. All right, go on. 
You are just making all sorts of bad judgment calls today, aren't you? Man, my, my head cannon movie is very fun. <laughs> it was a wild. Uh, Alan Rickman from Prince of Thieves is in that. Um, so we would, yeah, we talked about amnesia on film, and I found a little article over on um, oh the National Library of Medicine, uh, which kind of looks at uh, amnesia conditions in films and their relation to reality. And so I think that would just be kind of a fun guide to walk us through uh, these movies, the way amnesia is portrayed in film. Uh, as a character device, as a narrative device, and what that looks like. And so to go along with that, uh, we would look at a little comedy. We'd talk about Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore pairing up in 51st Dates, uh, where Drew Barrymore has uh, suffering from memory loss there, uh, and uh, Sandler has to kind of uh, woo her somehow uh, because it's a romantic comedy. Uh, and so memory loss is kind of a big uh, component through that film. There are other characters that are met uh, who are suffering from memory issues. Uh, I think that would be our starting place. Uh, from there, we jump back uh, with Christopher Nolan and we look, look at Memento uh, and the way in which uh, memory is played with there and the way in which Nolan plays with the plot uh, to kind of keep everybody in the dark uh, into what is really going on uh, in some really unique ways. We take a look at Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, wherein amnesia is a choice uh, to get rid of painful, hurtful memories uh, as a coping mechanism. Uh, then we take a look at the Bourne series, uh, which probably kind of really closely aligns with uh, Hogarth as, as this man totally. has no idea he's a killing machine. Uh, and why he's being hunted. Uh, I think that's a fun pairing there. Uh, from there, we take a look at another little comedy. Um, we would look at uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn in Overboard. Arturo! Wherein a, uh, a uh, mean, rich uh, lady uh, loses her memory uh, and then becomes uh, the love interest of a conniving uh, handyman in, in Kurt Russell. And so the match 80s made were heaven. wild. Yeah, it was a weird decade. Uh, and then from there, uh, we would take a look at Finding Nemo. And talk about Dory and, and that character and, and the role she plays within that. Um, but yeah, I think that's what we talk about. We would just kind of look at, and this could be part of a bigger study on maybe mental health in film and, mm. and different kind of things you could look at and amnesia just being part of that. But mental health or even health and just kind of health aff afflictions in general in yeah. film. Being such a Hitchcock fan, I thought you were going to say Spellbound with Gregory Peck's amnesia. I haven't seen it. Oh. And it didn't come up in the, I don't know if I saw it in the article. Just kidding. Okay, well, anyway, that, that, that's a good Head one, Head Cannon, Gregory Peck, hey. <laughs> is the colonel. All right, the colonel. All right, Mr. Head Cannon. Are, are yeah, you, yeah, okay. Mr. Head Cannon. Yeah, I'm just rewriting this entire movie in my fabula. Yeah. That, yeah we'll, now that you've... We forget the Shazette. We don't care now at all Now that you've deconstructed <laughs> and reconstructed the Iron Giant due to lack of sleep, how would you teach it? Uh, Head Cannon is Nick's little brother who has not impregnated any ladies. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, God. Wowzers. Um, I did, in fact, watch the movie. Arthur was there when I was watching it, so, I mean... He I, was distracted the whole I, time. I that's just, why he doesn't have any information about the movie, what, right? Maybe that's what happened there, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I totally rewrote it while I was yeah, had other people talking to me while I watched the movie. <laughs> Um, I was going to do uh, uh, maybe a class on animated film, uh, animated feature films. Okay. It was what I was thinking about doing. And that the module that I would include Brad Bird and Brad Bird's film, The Iron Giant, in would be a, uh, a little section called uh, Late 20th Century Auteurs. Because that, that is kind of marking a moment in which animation sort of experienced its own little moment of auteurism. And there are three sort of major figures uh, within them. First being Ralph Bashke, 
who we were talking about a little bit off mic, famous for doing his work with Lord of the Rings films, Fritz the Cat, and uh, the Wizards. Wizards is a really, really strange. That's what I was trying to think of. Bizarre earlier. little fun film uh, that I, I really would rather show than anything. Um, he's also got some work on Fire and Ice, but I don't think he's got a direct credit on that movie. So I'd have to look into that and see where his uh, his relationship to that film actually is. Um, then I would move into so that's like sort of my seventies character for auteurs and my eighties character for this is Don Bluth and okay. Um, your all dogs go to heaven, and especially your land before time, both of which were huge successes uh, in filmmaking. And again, uh, we're sort of staying away from the House of Mouse, which sort of avoids auteurism in the same way that auteurism was kind of strangely avoided in 20s and 30s studio filmmaking. You kind of have Mutsker and Clements, and that's it mm-hmm. over at the House of Mouse. Joy yeah. their lowest point is the 70s and 80s as well. Yeah. Until and, the 90s. You're not wrong. And when they're sort of like reskinning like yeah. existing characters and just sort of animating them in a new movie. Yeah. 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 And I, I think it is Musker and Clements is like the productiveness and fruitfulness of their collaboration that like is what brings Disney back from the brink. And I think that's what gives them that sort of foothold to be auteurs over at Disney is mm-hmm. they, yeah. they, they sort of ushered in that, that golden era. Absolutely. And then uh, the, towards the late 90s, then we've got the sort of strange case of Brad Bird, who is this sort of weird outsider to, uh, you know, you studied at Cal Arts after that incredible internship uh, there at um, Disney and uh, has, you know, had difficulty sort of finding projects and being able to get them greenlit. And so there's there's a lot going on that's really fascinating with this particular uh, filmmaker. And so thinking about what he is doing in terms of style and his particular brand of auteurism, which uh, when you're talking about animated film, there is uh, a way in which the collaborative nature of filmmaking in the first place, which sort of mitigates against any sort of auteur theory, and we talk about this pretty much every time we bring up auteurs at all, uh, this is very much the case in animation. And yet there is a sort of way in which he is really able to sort of bring about this unifying style uh, in his uh, in his film uh, oeuvre. And so I, th- I think he's a fascinating sort of uh, piece in this. I mean, we could go on to John Lasseter in the aughts and beyond uh, as well as another good example of uh, future auteurism. But I was sort of kind of limited to that and then just talk about move into some more conversation about um, just CGI, um, the sort of uh, 3D animation that sort of takes takes over at that point if I was teaching the class. And the, with the sections before that, we would talk about Disney. We would talk about other um, animation features. We'd also talk a lot about uh, animation in terms of um, programming, uh, how MGM's got your Tom and Jerry and, of course, your famous Warner Brothers characters, Disney's own uh, animated sort of shorts, and uh, how those were independently sort of sold to individual companies. And so I would want to think about those sort of industrial uh, exhibition sort of practices as well in the totality of the class. But where I would use uh, Bird there would be in this sort of little section on auteurs and him being sort of the last of the sort of maverick auteurs uh, with Don Bluth and then um, Bashke uh, sort of being the uh, antecedents of that. So that are, those are my thoughts um, on a class there. But I think, dear listener, your syllabus just got much longer, and I believe now is a time we all get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. And that's right, dear listener, and this business it's is, as always, time. analysis. Uh, so what do we, what's, what's your pleasure, fellas? What shall we discuss first? 
and uh, dealing with the Iron Giant. I, we could keep talking some more form stuff, some some animation production, like how this happens. I mean, this happens because of the 90s gold rush of an, a, that was going on in animation. Right. Everybody had to have an animation team. DreamWorks, DreamWorks was, you know, yeah. coming to the fore. And, Which yeah, we talked about right on our Shrek, Shrek here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. Exactly. We talked about on Shrek episodes sort of how all these moving pieces that are going on in the mid to late 90s. A, a formal choice is made in the film is there is CGI being used in this 2D uh, mm-hmm. film, hand-drawn film, in the giant itself. And they do make a choice to shoot it in twos yeah, they, rather than in ones. There we go. And See, Dustin, your sleep deprivation hasn't totally cooked your brain. You uh, knew about this. Uh, yeah, yeah I which I think is one of the more interesting things about the movie is... Mm-hmm. To to give the giant a hand drawn look is to animate. That's what they why they animated him on the two to make it rougher. Yeah, exactly. So he was more cohesive as far as like visually with the, the hand drawn elements. Well, and that's the slowness of his movements. Mm, it's sort of it, it's sort of yeah, yeah yeah. It does give some substantialness, which is sort of like the fundamental problem of CGI in general. Mm-hmm. And so it's too smooth, it's too clean. Too, yeah, too smooth, too clean. And in this case, they roughed it up. And it really, really works. Yeah, it does. Well, that's why everybody is so in love with the way that Into the Spider-Verse looks. Because it's CGI, but it's, you know, they are there's a lot of hand-drawn elements and they're animating on the twos to give it that yeah. sort of comic book come-to-life feel. Mm-hmm. And I again, I, that's that's such a big part of this movie is is the different things, the different modes of, of animation that they're working in. And just sort of kind of laying the groundwork for stuff to come later. I guess from a uh, distribution standpoint or audience re- reception standpoint is kind of the uh, working theory that... We were so uh, down the rabbit hole for CGI that this was too traditional to go see. Is that why? I mean, are, do you, do we know why pundits would, or what what we were saying about its failure? On the do documentary, you, I mean, it really seems like everybody lays the blame at the feet of Warner Brothers. Just but they failed the market, not marketing. Yeah, they they had, just buried it. And, they had years to give them a release date and start marketing the movie. Yeah. And they wait until like the last four months before the movie's ready to go. Gotcha. They wanted to push it back a whole year. And Brad was like, no, because he was worried if they pushed it back, the movie would never see the light of day. Yeah. Because mm. the, the animation, they had already bungled on their big uh, quest for Camelot movie, which was a huge, yeah. you had never heard big of that. failure. Yeah. I had never heard of it until really? watching the documentary for, uh, I remember it's got that two headed dragon. Yeah, it was, I yeah. saw it. I think they they but put it, a lot of money into that, and it didn't do any any business really. So I, the, there was real concerns that Warner Brothers Animations was going to get shuttered before this saw the light of day, and, and so gotcha. it was Brad Bird like forced them to honor with the ninety nine release date, and so they put it out that August, and it just they had four months to get mm. people's get it in people's consciousness, and you, I mean, how, how are you going to compete with Tarzan? Tarzan had been, you know, at being advertised for over a year prior to its release in theaters. Yeah. It just, you know, it was a steamroller. And the Phil yeah. Collins soundtrack. Of course. I mean, but that, that's really where they lay the ground. I mean, yeah. That was you know, we're missing the Harry Connick soundtrack. That's, that's what yeah, we needed. That's a, yeah, that would have got butts in seats. Big band jazz and Dean digging that. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you what, there's a there's there's a thing in which yeah, that, there's a tie in that would have yeah. worked. Yeah, it would not have. No. <laughs> 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 that, that is where they lay the the blame, I guess. Is is the just the lack mis- of yeah. marketing, yeah. Hmm. Um, which is a, a bummer. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's a really it's a great film. Uh, but I, I I guess to Arthur's point, I think the reason why the execs did not feel like it was worthy of putting that money in marketing behind it is because of its traditional look and thinking that this is not going to sell anyway. Is Tarzan ninety nine? Tarzan's also ninety nine. And okay. so I think they were worried that we could 
bother to put the money in and then we're still not going to get any return they wanted and, to push it back that year they yeah. they i think once they knew what they had on their hands they got excited because yeah. when the audience test score started coming in that was that's kind of the consensus was that warner brothers started giving them a lot more attention yeah, anybody who's seen it knows it's yeah. good and yeah. they were able to make the movie like with very few eyeballs on them because quest for camelot was such a bomb mm. that's just kind of like so nobody gave a shit what they were doing. yeah exactly nobody really Go film the matrix in australia for four months and don't talk to us yeah exactly kind of we got other stuff we're working yeah. we're about yeah, yeah. yeah um i i think what's interesting is the um oh my god you were just talking about the execs and cgi marketing scares. budget that was what was interesting it was it was still they put like 30 million in the marketing that's Something like one like of the that, rough yeah. numbers is they still put a lot of money into it yeah like 40 mil to make late. and 30 mil to budget right yeah, that's, like that's, that. that's the figure that i've seen thrown around online mm-hmm. um and yeah they just even with still putting like a fair amount of money it's just one enough time yeah, there's just simply nothing they could have done, and I think that's really what it comes down to is it just there wasn't enough time to get this in the public consciousness. Yeah, and there's almost a way I think this is kind of just you know armchair marketing at this sure. point. There's almost a way in which you could make this a holiday favorite, right? I mean, if you release it maybe in November, mm-hmm. it's a big family movie. Sure, animation kind of lines up with Christmas, right, with that snow stuff at the end. Um, so you know, I, I think those things also kind of help establish a consumer base because everybody's gonna go see a movie on thanksgiving or what or whatever fall yeah, break or whatever right, right. Uh, it's not quite i mean august is hard because unless you know you're because that's usually the last temple is, is kind of august at least now um because everybody's going back to school things get bad, so it's hard to drop a movie in august and i think hope for unless it is a big name player yeah i mean i think that speaks to the fact that they were kind of dumping it i mean that that early august release date's not a great weekend yeah so I think that that uh, the thing that I was trying to remember that what I wanted to bring up, there was a leaked copy of this. Somebody worked on the movie had leaked it to uh, Ain't It Cool News way back, you know, when that was still a movie. <laughs> yeah. That was something I picked up from the the Giant Stream documentary. Really? Yeah. The two because they were worried about Warner Brothers, you know, shelving the movie. Basically, mm. they they went ahead and leaked a rough draft of it, and uh, that and that generated a lot of kind of buzz, a lot of buzz, and that got got them some more traction cool. with the studio. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I also learned um, the one of the storyboard artists on this, Andrew Jimenez, basically invented a new way of prevising movies. He scanned their storyboards into After Effects, scanned the storyboards in the computer and then used After Effects to animate the storyboards. Interesting. And boom. That's just that's that's common practice now. Hmm. So he animated the storyboards to kind of help pre-visualize some of the scenes. And uh, there's you know, it just basically gave them better. Their story reels were cheaper to make and better than anybody else's. <laughs> so it really helped the production of the movie along huh. as far as, you yeah. know, just a cohesive style and and um, fluidity of, of animation. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Just uh, again, I can't more strongly recommend it. Uh, the Giant's Dream. It's directed by uh, Michael G. Aquino's son, which I thought was interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a really, a really fun uh, artifact because it, it gets into both the production of the Iron Giant, but also it gets into Brad Bird. And I think this was kind of a good segue for us to talk about the big theme of the movie. Mm, yeah. Um, so Brad Bird's sister oh, right, yeah. um, was murdered by her husband with a gun. Uh, and that happens as he's between the Warner Brothers and Time Warner thing, I think. Gotcha. So it's like as he's coming on, you know, to Iron Giant, um, he's already been grieving this for a few years. Uh, is sort of the, the way that it seems like the timeline works out. And that's where he gets the Iron Giant script, which is uh, based on a book 
uh, English book. It's uh, Sylvie Plath's husband. I can't think of his name. Uh, it's called The Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote it after Sylvia, uh, Sylvia's suicide. Is it written in poetry? Uh, he is a poet, but I don't know if it was. It's written prose. Or it might be, I, I, yeah. I can't remember if it's written. Oh, prose God, there's or there's a there's a poetic connection to this. Yeah. In my, I mean, he is a poet laureate. Yeah. Okay, my a, soggy memory has got something there. It says it's a novel. Okay, it is a novel. Okay, so Brad takes it away. You know, Pete Townsend of the Who is supposed to be making a musical of this this British book. It's Ted Hughes. BT does. Ted Hughes. Thank you. Couldn't think of his name. Uh, Brad Bird takes it away, comes back, and says, "I don't want to make that movie, but here's the movie I want to make." And it's about a gun with a soul that doesn't want to be a gun. Mm-hmm. And that's the pitch he gives in the room. And the way he tells the story is that, ooh, everybody started murmuring in the room. Like, it got the room excited. Uh, and then so that's how we we stepped away from the Ted Hughes book and come to this sort of Norman Rockwell by way of 50s B-movies, by way of anti-gun PSA. Mm-hmm. We, we come to this, uh, this sort of a weird American classic through... Uh, by paying Ted Hughes and Pete Townsend to not use any of their work, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I always love when that happens on a movie. Is that is funny. You just pay people to not use work they've done. It's always funny to me. Yeah, that is funny. But yeah, they wanted more jokes, more mu- they wanted it to be a musical, and he was like, no, I don't want to make that movie, but here's the movie I want to make. And you know, he was able to sell them on it. But yeah. it, it all comes from this very real, very human place of, you know, his family member was a victim of gun violence, and he wanted to examine that with film Mm -hmm. i I think that's really valuable because it's uh boy did a lot of people get shot in american movies yeah Uh, a lot of guns in american movies well i think it's really you know interesting somewhat symbolic i think that this kind of initial moment in the film is uh a dead deer which i think calls back to bambi almost immediately yeah which i think for many children is probably their first encounter of gun violence on screen mm-hmm. or at least i think wow for several generations right sure I, mean, I think i don't know a confrontation with just the notion of death in general yeah yeah. yeah 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 but specifically with a gun too there's also an earlier version of that scene where the giant is actually the one responsible for the deer's death mm. he reaches out to pet it or whatever and, and crushes, crushes it, it. yeah, yeah. And it, moment. It, well that's why they had to change it it yeah. just killed the movie yeah it, the movie couldn't recover from it it was yeah, too uh, sad yeah that's a uh it's a Frankenstein yeah. throwing the, or, bit, the girl yeah. in, the, in the river kind of moment. Yeah. yeah, Hogarth is like, there's no scene you can Pet have the where... the bunny. Yeah, the, the soul, <laughs> souls don't die work a lot better when, like, Hogarth is talking about death abstractly versus, mm-hmm. like, the actual responsibility for death. Like, I, yeah, there's no way the movie can bounce back from that. So it makes sense. Yeah. But you're right. It absolutely does call in Bambi. And I, I think as another animated film, I think it's kind of an interesting lineage there at the very least. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, of course, they ended up going the Bambi route of of using that to, to introduce the concept of death to the Iron Giant. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got to have that come up somewhere before the, the grand climax of the movie. And, I mean, that just speaks to the story economy of this thing is like there's so much done with the deer scene and like the immediate aftermath. Like it really does lay a lot of groundwork for the, you know, the emotional end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really effective, but uh, right, and and I think you know it does expand itself beyond um, the sort of anti-gun kind of gun control sort of argument into something that speaks directly to the the cold world, which is sort of the anti-nuclear proliferation kind of thing as well. It's just this accumulation of sort of uh, uh, stockpiles of 
ballistic weapons um, of the nuclear sort. And uh, and so the film does again and again. This is text, not subtext. Does sort of speak to that kind of idea. And uh, Manley's character sort of is evidence of this trigger happy. You know, get them before they get us, or mm. at least you know give them as much as they give us kind of mentality that sort of governs a lot of those policies over the '50s, '60s, '70s into the '80s when we sort of begin kind of serious conversations about um, um, deproliferation and that kind of thing. And so, um, anyway, I just want to name that connective tissue as well to the, uh, the the context of the Cold War there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. That that Cold War setting definitely like makes that, I uh, you know, I don't want to be a gun message like ring a little bit more cleanly as far as like state violence versus you know interpersonal violence mm-hmm. like it makes the metaphor a little bit bigger and you right. know, a little bit more thematically interesting for sure when it becomes a conversation about technology as well is the idea that we mm. can use these technologies yeah. for other things you know yes you know you built this incredible robot but you built this incredible robot that is designed to again murder you know massive numbers of populations yeah. um and this idea well what else could you do with a, a robot that does that's it this huge you know there are other uses um, that it might yeah. have. Um, and of course, the idea of it having a soul in the first place is that sentience piece is fascinating as well. It's, it's one of the rare instances in science fiction of um, benevolent AI, which is kind of fun too. I mean, this is sort of cute T2, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I think, hmm. always been sort of why I was drawn to this movie. Like, I've, I've, I came to Terminator 2 before I came to this film. Uh, mm-hmm. so it explains a lot about my childhood probably, <laughs> but you know, well, just how time works too. That's fair. Fair. But I, I think that this film, like it takes all of that sort of interesting, like the machine father, you know, the father who can't be a bad dad. He just, just it's not in him. He, mm-hmm. he couldn't do it if he tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, to use that concept and, and make it a little bit more childlike, let it be more about, you know, not necessarily pacifism, but you know, an, uh, an anti-violent story versus, you know, sort of an action-adventure story that we get in T2. It really does make that that parent figure, uh, robot as parent figure, um, I don't know, different. I, I guess he's more of a pet than a parent in this film. That's that's not wrong, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, the, the idea of the T-800 as father is, like, explicitly stated within mm-hmm. T2. Here he's, yeah, I mean, he's the connection's more to that of a pet, but it still brings the, the about this idea of, like, of course, a child is is the one that can bond with the AI, right? Because it's not taking it has no preconceived notions. It's taking less baggage into this interaction, and it's it's treating it as a as a being with a soul and not mm-hmm. a thing. And I think that that's, I mean, that's huge, right? Hogarth is from moment one treats it as a person, right? Yeah, and I, I think that that's like such a big part of like why their I don't know their relationship works within the movie. I mm-hmm. mean, they, it's so believable because they they just have like good chemistry for right. like a better way to put well, it. Well, their initial interactions, he saves the giant's life. Yeah. And so by doing that, um, there is a, and, and, and the, the giant being aware of that and being grateful to mm. sort of express that, yeah. that sort of is like the moment where, oh, there's something more here. Yeah. And that opens up all those possibilities, I think there, which is again, good narration. Uh, it's a real that. thorn in the lion's paw type scenario. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, totally. Uh, you talked about manly, uh, a, mm-hmm. you know, sort of his bloodlust, you know, right. let's nuke the robot. Yeah. Um, he he sort of represents a common figure in, in movies, right? The untrustworthy government man, the right. G-man that uh, is, is up to no good. Shoot first, ask questions later guy. Yeah. yeah. Not even just that. I mean, that becomes part of his character, but he's, he, you know, he's there to get into everybody's business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the intruder. Yeah, mm-hmm. he yeah. is definitely an intrusive sort of figure. Yeah. I didn't... I, I, I think I found myself frustrated with his character by the end. I, I just... He felt so kind of flat until the last act that, you know, this insane paranoia leading to nuclear holocaust in this small town in Massachusetts and the Eastern Seaboard uh, felt like, I don't know, it felt a little... Is it Maine or is it Massachusetts? It's Maine. It's Maine. Portland, Maine. It's Maine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maine. Okay, sorry. But anyway, it, it just felt like, I don't know, the, that that kind of character is like... <laughs> His motivation, I never really understood. Yeah, I guess. he's he's a good movie asshole, but yeah, you're yeah. right that he's kind of flat as a character. It's yeah, uh, you know, why is he this? I mean, obviously, communism was bad, red herring, yada yada yada. <laughs> right? But uh, I mean, I, I understand those kind of absurdities and concerns were rampant, but the extreme to which he takes it feels. I think there's like some sense. Um, you know, they they kind of make it clear that his division or his unexplained occurrences department yeah. or whatever is is not taken seriously is that like. okay mm-hmm. so that's my guess yeah is he wants to be taken seriously yeah. by the general i guess that's what is his end game in all of this and yeah. i guess legitimacy yeah. Yeah. yeah okay yeah but, but then i think by the end of it, it as it a proto man in black yeah mm-hmm. exactly i think yeah. exactly that yeah and i think by the end of it it's like well he just didn't like the robot and the kid yeah uh, by the end of it it is just like personal grievance yeah he hates them both yeah <laughs> and wants to see them dead he's just like a yosemite sam level of outrage yeah, yeah. Yeah, and characterization. Complete lack of foresight, and yeah, you, you send the nuclear ballistic missile at yourself. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is very funny that Kent Manley believes in duck and cover. He's a grown <laughs> man <laughs> believes in duck and cover is really funny. Yeah, we're gonna go in the shelter, right? We'll be fine. He's like, no, not no. gonna work. I like the. I know this is like a weird thing to hone in on, but every time I watch this movie, John Mahoney's character, the general, mm-hmm. his teeth are great. Oh, yeah. I love his teeth. There's just he's got like a little gap between well, like his like canine, like his bicuspid or whatever. Like the way they draw his yeah. teeth is just like so good. I, I love think it. a lot of those things. You know, I, I think of uh, the, the five o'clock shadow on Dean. Yeah, it's just like a really nice patch. little touch, or the yeah. the weird like uh, priest eyes that uh, the old man has that first meets the robot. Yeah, and then Walsh's yeah. character. Yeah, yeah, he's got those big circles around his eyes. Yeah, like, there's a lot of fun little things like that throughout. Mm-hmm. Dean's art looks cool. Yeah. Yeah, his his art all looks kind of fun and interesting. Yeah, uh, he's I love his little freaky, soul patch, <laughs> his soul patch, but it's also his like yin yang uh, robe oh, that he right answers on. the yeah. door in. Yeah, he's such a hippie. Just <laughs> a, you know, being into espresso in the late fifties yeah. too. Yeah. Just a cool guy. Yeah, in the small town, yeah, in the small, small town. New England yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah d- we do of course love that he becomes stepdad. That's just cute. Yeah, yeah. it's a good end. It's just mm-hmm. it just ties a bow on the on the movie. It's what you love to see. You want to see hot people kiss, even if they're cartoons. <laughs> you want to see people get together. That's that's movies for you. What what can you say? We're we're dumb monkeys, and uh, it's it's the simple pleasures that uh, make movies sing. Sometimes. Right. Uh, any any big thoughts about this that we haven't touched on? I know we we kind of are all at the consensus that it's a little shallow, even if it's like a, a powerful message. Right. Yeah. That's kind of where I, I live. I mean, yeah. I mean, the only other spin is like, you, you don't have to fit into the box that you're made. Right. Oh yeah. You are who you choose to be. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of the other sweeping. Which is the beat Nikki kind of, you know, version, you know, Jack Kerouac, do your own thing kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Which is again, I, we've talked about like economy of story and just like good screenwriting and stuff. That's you know the you are you choose to be from Dean getting echoed by Hogarth to the mm-hmm. giant. Like that's just yeah, that's just good scriptwriting. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right, well let's go ahead and render a verdict then. What do we say with the Iron Giant? Shall we put it in the shelf or put it on the shelf or put it in the trash? Prepositions matter. Uh, what do you say, Arthur? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think you shelf it. I, I think it has established itself in the last 23 years as something of a uh, influential piece. It's risen kind of to cult status, and it, it exists as sort of a weird artifact of late 90s animation and filmmaking. And so I think it has enough there to uh, make it worthy of a shelf. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, uh, they put the Iron Giant in Warner Brothers multiverses. Their uh, Super Smash Brothers ripoff. He's he's a he's a household name. He's a pop culture icon. They put him in the stupid Ready Player One movie. They he's so cool. They keep making him be a gun, even though the movie's about him not wanting to be a gun. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so you have to have the movie so you can watch the movie and be reminded that the Iron Giant is about you know being a gentler, softer person. Right. <laughs> even though the the world wants you to be a hard ass. Uh, yeah, I think this is an American classic. I think this is a great movie. Very good, very good. I would also say Shelf. I think it is one of the great uh, animated features of the 20th century. And so, yeah, it's it's a lot. It's it's a lot of fun, and it's a very very important film. So, um, definitely put it on your shelf. So, with that, that concludes our discussion of the Iron Giant. And you might want to be part of that, dear listener. And Dalton's going to tell you how. I sure will, Dustin. Uh, if you want to email long form feedback to us, you can do that at GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail That's the name of the show you're listening to at gmail.com send us a long form feedback if you want to find us on twitter we're at good trash media uh it's where you can find links to this show other stuff we're into uh just as keeping up with us on social media that's the best way to do it at good trash media uh i don't know if you listen to this show and don't subscribe or follow it do that i guess Mm. i can't imagine you listen to the show and don't already subscribe to it but you know if you want to get real cheeky you can follow us on multiple podcatcher platforms i'm not going to stop you from doing that Send us a review, whatever. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on all the places. You know how to work podcasts. Uh, Last but certainly not least, if you want to help us keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM and uh, read up a little bit on uh, what's in it for you as far as uh, giving us some money to pay for web hosting fees and stuff like that. And purchasing movies like The Iron Giant, which is... Not streaming on HBO Max for some reason, even though it's a Warner Brothers animation joint. Strange. Yeah, very bizarre. Uh, But anyway, if you want to help us pay for movies, you go to patreon.com forward slash GTM and uh, find out what's in it for you. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, I believe we're going to do another show, is what I heard. We are? Are you you going to get some sleep before then? Well, you know, I make no promises. (laughs) Uh well okay I guess we can do one more then oh there's a little ghost here on Google um I uh I I well you know I've been trying to I I haven't told you guys this but I've been uh, thinking about opening in a restaurant uh but I need a little more money um so I've uh, decided to freelance as a bounty hunter and next week we gotta go to the jungle catch Sean William Scott when oh, we watch yep. <laughs> there we go the rundown nice. I'm very, very excited fun. to talk about Dwayne The Rock Johnson and uh, his bizarre career. I think that's maybe one of his best movies. So, it's so I mean, good. Yeah, I, I think uh, early aughts Dwayne Johnson knew how to, to use his persona way better than 2020 Dwayne Johnson. We can talk about it. Yep. Look forward to it. All right. Sounds good. You keep watching. We'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.